Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6. We are working through the Sermon on the Mount, and last week we arrived at the section where Jesus commands us not to worry. Matthew chapter 6. I am again going to read a longer section here just so we get the flow of thought. I'm going to start in verse 19 and read all the way to the end of the chapter, although I'm not preaching on the whole section. This again is the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we are amazed that You love us enough to command us to do things for our good, both our temporal and eternal good. And one of those commands you gave us through your Son is that we should not be anxious or worried, that we should not have a sinful anxiety that begins to creep in and to take over our emotions and to paralyze us at times with fear of the future. God, we thank you that you are such a kind and generous Father, such a caring and present Father, that you promise to care for us that you promised to tend to us like a shepherd tending to his flock, like a father tending to his little needy child. God, what an amazing thought that the God of heaven is the father of those of us here on earth who know the Lord Jesus. What an astounding thought to call God our father. God, I pray that you would comfort us with the truth of your fatherly care and your providential control of our lives, and help us to find great comfort in those truths so that we would not have a sinful anxiety that would dominate our lives, and when it springs up, that we would fight it in your power. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I was thinking this weekend, now, I, I wish I could say this was true of me more regularly, but I, I had a moment over the weekend, and maybe this happens to you sometimes if, if you've been a Christian for a while, where you really have a moment where you just sense, what if I had not become a Christian? You ever have this thought? What if the Lord had not intervened in my life? That song we sing sometimes here, as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Imagine if God had not mercifully, sovereignly intervened in your life and had left you on the path you had chosen to run. Imagine where you might be right now. I had this moment, again, over the weekend. It comes to me, I don't know, once every month or two, I have these moments where I just really think about that. And I thought, you know, it, it is really actually possible that I could be dead and in hell right now had the Lord not intervened in my life in 2003. That's where I could be. So here's why I say that. If the Lord has brought you to faith, if the Lord has saved you and forgiven you, my goodness, we have no reason to fear the future. We have no reason to have anxiety dominate our lives and mark our lives as Christians. You understand, the thing that we truly have to be worried about, we no longer have to be worried about. Eternal judgment no longer awaits you in your future, Christian brothers and sisters. That is not part of our future anymore. The only thing we really have to fear, if we know Jesus, we don't have to fear that anymore. Here's what you have to look forward to as a Christian. No matter what trials come your way, God is going to work them for your good, and one day everything ends up great around the throne. That's your future. Everything ends up great around the throne. That is your eternal destiny in Jesus. And when I get locked into, which I do, into sinful patterns of anxiety, I am lying about my Father. I am saying, God doesn't really have the best in store for me. God doesn't really want to work everything for my good. If I was God, I would have a better way to work things out. You ever have that tendency in your life? If I was, if I was at the controls, this would be, a, you know what it would be? It would be a disaster. If I or you were at the controls of the universe, we would be in some serious trouble. But just think about your salvation. If you ever want proof that God is for you, He saved you. He saved you. And I realize this doctrine can be controversial, but I don't want to give it up because it is controversial. I believe in the sovereign election of God, and I believe that that is an incredible doctrine in the midst of anxiety to say, God unconditionally chose to save me in Christ despite not deserving anything good from God. What a comforting truth these things are. And in this passage, Jesus wants to rid us of paralyzing sinful worry and anxiety. In the last 10 years, as they do studies, anxiety has been going up amongst really everyone. Amongst teenagers, anxiety has gone way up since about 2012. Have you seen some of these studies? Around 2012, it starts going up. Suicide amongst teenagers and young people has gone to, I think, an all-time high in our country's history. I believe that is correct. It's gone way up. There are tragic and awful, heartbreaking stories because we don't know what to do with the uncertainties of life. I just heard of a tragic story, it may have been an older story, I don't know the year, but of, of a young girl in high school, uh, she had been bullied, some kids kind of knocked her around at her lockers, they filmed it, and it was passed around the school, two days later she took her own life. And th these are the kind of tragic things that we see going on all around us, and Jesus is saying, listen, 
I've got something better. I've got something to give you that is better than these kinds of things. Now, remember last week, I don't want to repeat things too much, but, but I, I got to say this. The logical connection here is important. Do you remember verses 24 and 25? Let me reread those two. And the word, therefore, or I, therefore I say to you, or because of this I say to you, listen to these words. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, or for this reason, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, and he goes on. So I say this again, the goal isn't just to kind of beat us up, although there are times we do need to kind of be beat up by our sin. We need to know our sin. But I'm not saying this to beat up. I want you to hear this as a door to freedom for all of us. Underneath sinful anxieties and worries in our lives, underneath them are false gods. You cannot serve God in mammon, money, material things like food and clothing and those things. Because if you're serving the material things, you will have anxieties that accompany those things. Because here's why. Jesus is the only God that you've got nothing to worry about when you know Him. If you worship money, you will always have something to worry about. The economy is uncertain. I don't care how hardworking and prepared you are, how much money you make, you will always have a sense of, I need more to feel secure. Who in this room feels secure in their finances? She's like, I'm, I'm good. I don't need any. I'm good. I'm, I'm ready to go. I mean, we all feel like, what if this happens? What if that happens? And if our ultimate allegiance is to mammon, right, to money, to material possessions, if that's our ultimate allegiance, you better believe you're going to be anxious. Because anything that you worship and you can lose will create fear and anxiety and profound insecurity in your life. It does not matter what it is. David Pallison, I mentioned him last week, quoting him again this week. He said, only God can be pursued wholeheartedly without worry or anxiety. I've heard it said that if you live for your job and you fail at your job and you get in trouble or you get demoted or fired, then your job cannot forgive you. Right? If you live for your job, if that's your whole sense of worth and you mess it up, your career is destroyed by something you did or something that was done wrongly to you or rightly to you, if that happens, your career cannot forgive you for what happened. And if you worship it, you're going to be absolutely devastated at the end. But if it is Jesus himself that we are living for, he is the one being in the universe that he can actually forgive us. He can forgive us when we wrong and fail him. And he will not ultimately, at the end of the day, forsake us. Jesus says here, look at verse 25 again. Start back over at the beginning of the verse. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. David Pallison says this. Imagine that he just kind of makes up the sentence here based on Jesus. Is not life more than food? He says, well, is not life more than fill in the blank? Is not life more than being a mom, or a coach, or a pastor, or a teacher, or a businessman, or a student. Is not life more than the things we so often identify with and live for? 
Is not life bigger than those things? If we trap ourselves and say, no, life is this, that's what my life is, then I guarantee you anxiety will haunt you all your days. But if we say, no, life is more than these things. Life is ultimately about knowing Christ. It's about knowing God. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Life is knowing God. Life is not material things. Life is not abundance or adversity. It's not a, it, it transcends. It is far above. It is knowing the God behind everything in this world. Now, if you stare at this text for a while, you start to see how it breaks down. And maybe you've already noticed how it breaks down. Jesus essentially has these two categories. He deals with your life in regards to food and drink and your body in regards to clothing. And what he does, he breaks down and gives an illustration of both. He talks about birds in regards to your eating. It would include drinking, but he just mentions eating. He talks about birds in regards to eating, and he talks about the lilies of the field in regards to clothing, right? So it's about eating and drinking to support your life. It's about clothing to cover your body, and he gives two different illustrations of those two different things. That's how the structure of the passage breaks down. And let's look at it for a few moments here. Let me, I know I've read it already two or three times. Let me read it again here, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Some pastors pointed out, we don't even fully understand the depths and complexity of how the human body works. I mean, even with our technology today, it's hard to fully grasp even the complexity of the human cell. Some of you in this room are experts in the human cell. I am not. But from what I can tell, it is vast and complex in a way that is, it staggers the mind. I've heard it said that the complexity of any cell in the body is like that of a complete major city in terms of all the things that are going on to make that cell work. Listen, God has given you a body that transcends human understanding, and He's, given, he's breathed life into you. God has done something that we can't even understand fully, which is how the human life and body work. You think God is going to forget to care for your food and drink? That God's going to forget to care that you need, you need clothing? And if you're thinking, but wait, yeah, I know how skeptical minds work. Okay, at this point, if I'm you, I'm sitting there going, but there are Christians who have starved to death. There are Christians who have gone hungry and naked. That, that's true. That's true. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think Jesus is actually ultimately denying that. Let me just make a little point here. Remember Romans 8? Romans 8, everything works for your good. God is for you. Holy Spirit's interceding. Jesus is interceding. And then you know what it says? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or nakedness or famine or sword separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul adds this verse from the Psalms. We are being killed all day long like sheep to be slaughtered. That's in the present tense. We are being martyred. Christians today, I'm sure somewhere, will be martyred. We are being killed all day long. We are like sheep for the slaughter. And then what, is, what does Paul say? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, here's the point of Romans 8. Paul does not say that God is going to deliver us from any time we ever encounter the sword or deliver us from any time we might have famine or any time we might be naked. No, what he's saying is, even if those things happen to us, in those things, God will be for us. God will make us more than conquerors. And at the end of the day, even death itself will not separate us from His love. Let me, I say that because of this. When you read promises in the Old Testament and New Testament about God's provision for us, we need not remember that there are times where God allows His people to go through serious 
trauma in this life. And eventually we will face death itself, but God will be faithful to us in the midst of those things. Verse 26 of Matthew 6, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So the birds, (laughs) they don't have a factory. They don't have a barn where they store everything, where they make everything. That's not what happens. No, they don't sow or reap and gather and store in barns. They don't have a, no bird has a savings account. Not wrong for us to have one. We should be wise, but no bird has a savings account. What does the bird do? The bird wakes up every morning, and whether the bird knows this or not consciously, the bird relies on God to provide food for the day. And if God provides daily for the birds, how much more will He provide for us who are more valuable than they are? Verse 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Here, here, Jesus just gets really common sense on this. He just says, listen, does worry actually help at the end of the day at all? You know, I was thinking about something that uh, I'm not afraid, I'm not ashamed to admit to you. I was worrying about something recently, you say. You're preaching on anxiety, I know, and I still struggle with worry every day of my life. <laughs> so join, join the club here on this. This is a continual struggle in our life. I was worrying about something, and I remember thinking, you know what? Worrying about this is doing nothing. It's doing absolutely nothing. If I would instead take the time that I'm worrying and just talk to God about it, if I just turned it into prayer, if I just told God my worry and started talking to God about it, it would be a completely different situation. But sitting around running scenarios, don't you do this? Running the scenarios through your head? Well, there's X, Y, and Z that could happen. And if X happens, then X, Y, or Z could happen with that. And then if Y happens, X, Y, and Z could happen with that. There's 39 different possibilities of what you got this web spinning out. Well, if this happens, then that could happen. And you end up in these hypotheticals that probably will never happen in any, in any kind of any imaginable way. And yet you're worrying about three levels out what could one day happen. That is a waste not just of time, it's a waste of our health. It doesn't do us any good at all. Jesus says that's that's not helping in any way. Instead, if we would pray and process these things in the presence of the Lord, we could actually begin to make progress in the area of worry. So worry does no good. Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus here is likely referring not simply to lilies as we think of them, but to wildflowers in the area where he was, just the common wildflower out that would cover the field in the tens of thousands. And he says, listen, these These flowers don't break a sweat. They don't toil. That's the idea of that word. They don't spin. They're not working really hard to do this. God clothes them with these beautiful petals. I mean, I'm sure some of you go to botanical gardens in the spring, do you not? And man, we go there with our kids almost every spring, and it may not last very long, some of those flowers, right? You go there, and there are these, these, I think, the red and different colored tulips out when you first get near the kids' area, and you go down into the garden, and my goodness, It's coming not that long from now. Uh, You walk through there, and it's just breathtaking. There's people everywhere in the garden, and it's just awesome. You take pictures with your kids, maybe you go over and take pictures of the flowers, and you're smelling these flowers, and they are absolutely stunning. And then you come back, this happened to us a couple years ago, I think it was maybe last year or the year before. We came back about two weeks later, 
it looked like a different place. I mean, a lot of the flowers had go- they were just gone. This, this whole patch of tulips that we looked at were just gone a, a week or two later. And you think, if God is going to clothe these flowers in such radiant beauty, and they are here today and gone tomorrow, such ephemeral, the ephemeral nature, the temporary transient nature of these beautiful flowers, if God is going to clothe them, they don't work for this, they don't break a sweat for this, God just clothes them in beauty, more beautiful than Solomon's robes. How much more does God care about you, his son or his daughter, his child in the faith? How much more will he care for and clothe us, O oh, you of little faith, he says. We have much to be encouraged about. Now, I want to mention two sort of large picture ideas in this section of Matthew 6. Two things. Number one, God's fatherly care. And number two, God's providence. So, if you can look back, we're in chapter 6. Let's go back before the Lord's Prayer. Look with me at verse 7. A similar theme of God's care that runs through this chapter. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then later, give us this day our daily bread. What an astonishing thought. So, if you feel right now discouraged, if you feel weak, I want you to know God, our Heavenly Father, is intimately aware of your life right now. I only see fragments of your lives. I I get little pieces, right? We, We know each other in part. God knows you fully and completely. He knows what you need before you ask. And guess what? He cares about everything in our life. Whether it is a major tragedy or triumph, well, the Lord cares about those things. If it is a mundane issue, the Lord knows and is involved and He cares about you. The fatherhood of God, the the, the fact that we are adopted into God's family is one of the most sweet and precious doctrines in all of Scripture. I mean, this is J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. He has a chapter which has struck uh, several of us, I think, as being particularly powerful. The Sons of God chapter in Knowing God. And Jerry and I have talked about this in the past. In that chapter, J.I. Packer says, justification is a glorious truth in the Bible. For those un- unfamiliar, just real quick, justification means, although I am sinful, Christ bore my sins If I trust in Him, He takes my sin and I am counted righteous or justified in Christ. I'm counted pure and righteous in Christ. That is an astonishing truth in the Bible, that although I have sinned in so many ways in my life, God counts me righteous. I am justified in Christ. That's an astonishing truth. And then J.I. Packer says this, but perhaps he says even more astonishing. You say, wait, more astonishing than justification? He says, even more astonishing is this. You are not just counted righteous by God the judge, you are counted as His child, you are counted as the child of God the Father. See, adoption through justification, 
is the, is the whole theme of the Bible. We, we, we are counted righteous by God, and we enter into His family, and He cares about us as a father cares for his children. And then let me add the second point of God's providence. Let's look back at it here. Look again at at verse 26. I don't want us to miss something that may be obvious, but I don't want to overlook it. Verse 26 of Matthew 6. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet, listen to the words, your heavenly Father feeds them. Look at verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, will He not much more clothe you? Do you hear what those two verses are saying? This is the doctrine. So, so again, we're, we want to do a Sunday school series. We mentioned this on Thursday night. Coming up in March, Lord willing, we'll, we'll spend several months going through the summer on the doctrine of providence, and we're going to come at it from several different vantage points. So, we're going to have a, uh, several months on this teaching. But let me just preempt that by mentioning this here. You, do, you, do you know the implications of those two, those two verses? Every time a bird gets its meal, God is said to have fed that bird. Every time a beautiful flower blooms, it says God has clothed that flower. We tend to think of God's providence almost like deism. Remember deism? Founding fathers, some of them believe this, where God is like a watchmaker. He winds up the world and he steps away and lets the world run on its own. God's sort of just standing back and watching the world take place, just sort of observing it from a distance. No, the doctrine of God's providence isn't that God is in control of the important things. It's that God is sovereign over every meal that every bird ever had in the history of the world because God feeds every bird. That's, the, that, that's how intricately involved God's providence is over everything. So every time you see a bird feeding, God in His providence is feeding that bird. He, he does it through the means that are out there in the world, but God is the one ultimately behind that. And every time a flower blooms, guess who clothed it? God did. This is not a God who stands back and sort of watches the world unfold and hopes the best for your life. This is a God who is so sovereign, as one pastor said, He attends the funeral of every bird. Jesus said, not a, not a single bird falls to the ground without your father being there, without his will being done at, at the death of a bird. Or here, every time a bird is fed or a flower blooms, God is doing that. He is, he is that intimately involved in his creation. You say, what does that have to do with my anxiety? It has everything to do with your anxiety. If I believe in a God who is simply watching the world unfold like we watch television news, we've got a problem on our hands, and there's a lot to be worried about. God is not simply watching the world happen. God is intimately, providentially guiding the course of your life in this world, which means nothing will enter your life that does not pass through God's fatherly filter of love. God is intimately sovereign and good and providentially in control. The last two months, as we heard from Scott, as we heard from Jerry on those last two Thursday evenings, what was the theme? It was God's providence over all these things that happened. Nothing was an accident. Jerry was talking, if you didn't hear it on Thursday night, When he was hit as a 17-year-old in that football accident, we saw the video of him falling to the ground. There was a man nearby, a medical man, who noticed the way Jerry fell, remember? And the way Jerry fell was so immediate and complete, he didn't catch himself. This man knew something worse had happened than a normal situation. He came running, remember, and was waving his hands at the bottom of the screen, stop, stop, don't pick him up. And Jerry pointed out, if they would have picked him up quickly off the ground, it could have severed his vertebrae, it could have severed his spinal column, it could have caused way worse damage than had happened at that point. And so, these little tiny moments that we barely think about, you better believe God is sovereign. He is providentially in control, and we can trust Him in these things. So, what do we do in real life when anxiety gets us 
by the throat. I'm going to use kind of an interesting illustration from uh, John Piper's book, from his book, Future Grace. He says, imagine you're driving your car and mud gets splashed up on your windshield, okay? The windshield is sort of your view of life in the metaphor, and the mud that gets kicked up on your windshield is anxiety, right? A blurred vision of your future. You have a blurred, distorted view, and the mud gets splashed up on your windshield. And so he says, okay, I know this sounds a little strange, but he uses the windshield wipers, and he says, you, you probably will also have your windshield wiper fluid, right? So you're using two of those things. He said, imagine that the windshield wipers are like God's promises, coming to wipe away the distorted view of reality and to show us a clear view of reality, right? The, the promises of God, wipe away the distortion so we can see clearly. And he says, and imagine the window washer fluid. And I'm like, you're, you're stretching a little here, uh, Mr. Piper. But he said, okay, so he said, imagine the window washer fluid is the work of the Holy Spirit. So the work of the Holy Spirit working through God's promises takes those anxieties that we have that splash up in our life and they wash it away. And so uh, I want you to turn real quick to your right to, to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. As you're turning there, I'm going to quote Piper a little bit more on this illustration. He says this. When anxiety strikes and blurs our vision of God's glory and the greatness of the future that He has planned for us, this does not mean that we are faithless or that we will not make it to heaven. It means our faith is being attacked. At first blow, our belief in God's promises may sputter and swerve. But whether we stay on track and make it to the finish line depends on whether, by grace, we set in motion a process of resistance, whether we fight back against the unbelief of anxiety. Will we turn on the windshield wipers and will we use the windshield washer fluid? He says, he says here, without the softening work of the Holy Spirit, the wipers of the Word just scrape over the blinding clumps of unbelief. Both are necessary, the Spirit and the Word. We read the promises of God and we pray for the help of His Spirit. So John 14, look at verses 25 through 27. I think you see these kinds of themes here from Jesus again. John 14, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, do you hear this? Troubled means anxious, fretful, worried, right? That's troubled. You're unsettled by the future. So Jesus offers the opposite of anxiety, and it is peace. Not the world's peace. My peace I give to you, he says. And then how does this peace get to us? Two things. Number one is the words Jesus has spoken to us, the promises. And number two, the work of the Holy Spirit to make those promises real to us. Look at it one more time. One, one, one more time. Verse 25. These things I have spoken. These are His promises to you while I'm still with you. Verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all, the th all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. That's His truths, His promises. And then what will happen? Verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I'm going to read a few verses here. You don't have to turn to these. Some promises about the future. What about protection? Worried about protection. Protection. 
You know, maybe Psalm 127, 1 and 2, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. See that doctrine there? The idea is I can't ultimately change these things. I have to trust that God is the one who is going to protect me and He will give me sleep and rest, not anxious toil, but restful peace and sleep in His presence. Proverbs 3, if you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. You will not be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked. When it comes for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. What about if you're worried about poor health in your future or in the present? Well, if it comes, it will increase our dependence on God. Romans 5.3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit He has given to us. What about death? We've talked about that over the last few months, but let me read a couple verses we haven't focused on as much. It's one of the great verses in the the New Testament, Acts 20.24. Paul says this, what a life verse, Acts 20, 24. I do not account my life of any value. A strange opening statement. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Here's what he says. My my life, when I die, is up to God. I'm just going to be faithful to the ministry and whatever He's given me, and I'm going to be faithful all the way to the end. One last passage here. 1 Corinthians 3.21, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Everything in our life is ultimately working for our good. We're going to come to the Lord's table now. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to start in verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I want to end the sermon here where I began, which is this. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, the ultimate thing we have to worry about is gone, which is God's righteous punishment of our sin. And this is to remind us of that truth. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus... There is something to be truly afraid of in the future. And it is not that God is unjust, but that God is just and that God is good. 
and that God will not let our sin go unpunished, and that we must flee to Christ who was punished in the place of sinners, that we might be saved and made right before Him so that that threat of punishment would be taken away. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are not uh, walking in unrepentant sin, then we would invite you to come forward to partake of these elements and to return to your seat. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus, we would ask you to refrain and to not come forward for these elements. There's nothing uh, magical about them. They symbolize the truth of the gospel. And what uh, you need if you are not yet a Christian is the truth that these things represent and not these symbols themselves. So please, if you're not a believer, we would ask you even now to talk to the Lord, to ask Him to open your eyes in your heart to convert you, to change you, to save you, and to forgive you of your sin. Let's bow our heads together in prayer, and then you may come forward to take of the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, I pray for all who know you right now, who are here, that you would remind us of the hell-bound race that we were once running, that we were indifferent to spiritual things, that we loved our sin more than we loved our Savior, and that we were running towards destruction as fast as we could, and that you, in your sovereign grace, you intervened and turned us around, and you brought us to the foot of the cross, and you gave us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth and beauty of the gospel. And you saved us, giving us the faith to believe, and we willingly believed and trusted in you. And God, I pray that you would remind us that if you have converted us out of sin, if you have sent your Son to pay for sin, we know that we can trust you. We know that you are not out to get us in any sort of way that is truly for our harm. And that even our trials are for our good. God, help us to trust you and to believe you. And to when, 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 the, when the doubts of anxiety like the mud splash up on our life and we cannot see, I pray that we would go to your promises and plead for your spirit to get the distracting thoughts and the sinful thoughts out of our way so that we can see again clearly with a great vision of your truth through your word. I pray you'd be honored through that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.